So now everybody is very glad that break is coming up. Be rid of me for a week, not have to think about that exam for a week. So um, I said, dude, if you, did, if you didn't see the note up here, if you came in later while I was handing them out, you do add five points to the number that you see on there. If you've already looked at your number on D2L, that should already be added into, I've already added that into it. And that brought the average up closer to 33 to 34 points out of 50. So still not great. Was it just, what, what threw it through? Was it the chapters? That four through eight chapter seemed to throw people last semester. I didn't know if that, did that cause issues? Or was it just, I'm just picking out stuff you weren't expecting? Or any specific comments on the, yeah? Okay. Yeah. Because I, I, I hit every lecture and every note. Right. Okay. Well, I'll try for the next one. No, I, I, so I appreciate it. I mean, I want to know what the, you know, I don't, I don't like to give exams that come out, come out, you know, almost 50, a little under, almost a little over 50 percent. I don't like to do that. I don't like to give exams that come out, you know, 95 percent either, because then I'm making them too easy. But, you know, I like to see them somewhere in the 70, you know, somewhere between, this would be a bad one if it was averaging in the 60s, and, a, you know, one that's averaging much over the mid-80s is probably too easy. So I'm looking for something in between, but I'll see what I can do with the next one and see if I we can. the multiple choice questions were the main thing. It was the multiple yeah, choice? Yeah, essays and stuff like that definitely related to material for sure. Okay. I think some of the multiple choice were kind of... And just getting too, too, too picky, too small of an area maybe? Is I that what so you're... Really. Okay. Okay. Well, let me look. I'll look at them more carefully on the next one. I mean, I'm not going to try to just make easy, easy ones, but I'll try to see if I can, can split them up a little bit better. Let me see. Did anybody else? Let me just make it on me. Okay. Any other comments other than we want to shoot the instructor? You know, don't, please. But overall, make sure you are looking at your total grade because if you look at the total grades on there, there's still the number of people. I think I've still got a few, I've got like four A's still in the class even with the exam. So I mean it's not, the, the overall it is. And a lot of the ones, a lot of the people that are getting hurt on the grades, it's not just the exams that's hurting you. It's, you know, you didn't turn in two of the homeworks or you didn't turn in one of the homeworks and you didn't do the article review. I mean the article review was 40 points. I think about half the class did the first one. So we've got another one coming up that can pull you. Those can pull you up drastically because that's essentially, that's 40 points with 50 point, compared to 50 points of an exam grade. So the people who are doing poorly overall, it's not just the exam that's pulling you down, it's, it's missing other stuff too. Uh, just to clarify, yeah. are the, the, is the lab grade coincide with this grade? Or the lab grade will get added into this grade at the end. It comes out, I have it scheduled to be about 200 points worth. So 200 points out of 1,200 is about a sixth of the about a sixth of the grade. I should have qualified that. When I turn in the midterm grades, which is any time now, I don't count the lab grade at this point. So if you're doing real great in lab, that's going to help you in the end. If you're skipping lab and not doing anything in lab, it's going to hurt you in the end. But I, when I turn in the midterm grades, it essentially is the percentage that I have right now that shows up on your screen. So if it says, you know, 79.99, I put it down as a C. I don't, I don't round anything for midterm grades at all. I won't even look at them. If it says, you know, if it's under, under the 80, I do that mainly so that you're con I, I need to keep working. I'm not, oh, I've got to be, I'm doing good, whereas you're right on the borderline. I won't bring you down. If you got 80.01, I won't say C, as long as you're over it. But I don't round it up at all, whereas I will look at that towards the end of the, at the end of the semester when it's a final grade. I'll look at those. Okay, other questions?
We do have a homework due then. Uh, I, you can turn in today if you're going to turn in paper copy. You can email it to me or drop it off to me tomorrow. And I will grade those before I submit your midterm grades too. I'll probably have those in before I actually submit. So you'll get 15 more points. Yes, sir? I have a question. It wasn't about the homework. But sure. Okay. No, that's just the observation, just any observations you've made, which is essentially that data sheet. You don't need to do the write-up. You don't yeah, need to, yeah, yeah, I got the data sheet. That's all I need, you make a copy of the data sheet, stick your name on it, and give me, give me that. Yeah, or copy it and, you know, email it to me, you know, whatever works out the best, yeah. All I'm looking for is the actual numbers. So date, time, weather, sky conditions, the height of your object, the length of your shadow. You don't even need to do the calculations. And then I'm putting them in a big database too and keeping track of everything. So that's all I need. You can make a copy of that and give it to me and that's, that would be great. So that's due tomorrow as well. Uh, quiz four will be after breaks. So you don't have to worry about that for now. So there's nothing hanging over your heads for break at all. You can just ignore everything for a week. And although if you want to think about your article review, it's due the end of that week. So if you're going to be working on it over a weekend, you want to start looking at that now. And then the iTunes quiz, the second one will be available starting when you come back from break. So that'll be up there for the week from March, starting March 12th for a week. And that includes the pictures through the end of this week through Sunday. So that'll include everything for the last, month, last month's worth from the, when we finished up the last one through not just today. Well, today's the first, so second, third, fourth through Sunday we'll actually have them. So that's what's coming up, but again, most of it is there. So if you want to start working, if you want to spend some time on, on break working on your article reviews, you're welcome to. If you want to do them on Friday night before at 11 o'clock, of course, you're welcome to do that as well. All right, other questions? No, okay. Picture of the day for today. Get to see a planet here, this is Venus as taken through a relatively small telescope. This isn't taken through a large telescope. The telescope up here is about a 12 and a half inch telescope. So you only talk about a telescope that's got a mirror about a foot long. So it's not a real big telescope taken. And it's an amateur astronomer that would take something, that would take these. You notice a couple of things. You do see some structure in the clouds that this person has been able to get. And that's by looking at it through different filters. When you do different filters on there, you can sort of enhance different areas and see some structure in the surface of the clouds of Venus. Now, we can't see the surface of Venus at all. You know, we can't get down to the surface. We can't see it visibly. Radio waves, radar waves, we can make a, we can make a map of the surface. But to actually see it, you have to penetrate the clouds. So you know, we get lots of cloudy days here. Venus is perpetually cloudy. The other thing you might notice is that the phase of Venus talked about that when we talked about Galileo, but Venus is not quite full, right? It's not quite a complete sphere here. Would be a little bit bigger. It's actually only a partial phase. And it's coming closer and closer to a crescent phase. If we watch it over the coming, if you could watch it over the coming weeks and months, this was taken on what? February the 5th, so about a month ago. If we take it now, it would be clo getting closer and closer to a quarter phase. And it, over the coming months, it'll get less and less. And that's leading up to the new phase of Venus, which will actually be on June 5th and si fifth slash 6th of this year. And something really interesting is happening with, v with Venus this year. And it's your last chance if you want to go see something with it. Venus is actually going to pass directly in front of the sun called a transit of Venus. So on June, I think it's the 6th from our view, 
it will actually pass right in front of the sun. Is there someone? I'll get it. It'll actually pass right in front of the sun. They go? Okay. Okay. It'll pass right in front of the sun and you'll see a little black disk across the surface of the sun. The last time this happened was in 2004. The next time it will happen is a little over 100 years from now. So if you want a chance to see it, this is your last chance unless you're planning on being here hundred and, what is it, 110 or 115 years from now. I don't think I'll still be here. So you know, maybe, maybe science will change and I'll still be around. But they only occur, they occur in pairs about eight years apart, which was 2004, 2012, and then they don't occur again for a next pair will be over 100 years from now. So, chance to actually see Venus pass directly in front of the sun as we see it here from Earth. And it actually is one thing that will be visible from where we are. It'll be late in the day on June, of course, visible weather permitting, but at least it's June and not January. So, June we got a little bit better chance than you do in January of getting a nice clear day. But as it'll actually be occurring even as the sun is, as the sun is setting during the late afternoon to sunset and you'd be able to see that. Now you might be able to actually look at it at sunset and see the disk there, see the disk of Venus across, passing across the sun. Or you might, if you're looking at it earlier in the day, you'd certainly need some kind of filters or something to look at. You don't want to just stare at the sun, obviously. Yes, sir? The magnitude of, oh, about minus four, minus five, the magnitude. Have I done, I don't remember, I think I've done, I think magnitudes we're going to be start doing a little more on today, so to, to what that means, but that mag, did he do magnitude? Okay. Yeah, I've got a little bit on magnitudes today when we've, we're finishing the sun and then go on. Um, in terms of magnitude, magnitude is a measure of the brightness. The smaller the number, the brighter the object. So Venus at being minus four or five will be the second brightest object in the sky. The moon will be about minus 11 or 12, and the sun will be a minus 26. Most stars are magnitudes one, two, three, you know, typical, more typical numbers. The very faintest things we can see are about 30th magnitude. So it's all in that range from about you know, minus 30 to plus 30. Everything we see is in about in that range. But yeah, Venus will be a very bright, I mean, you, you can't miss Venus right now. If you go out in the evening, the brightest object you see, you know, unless it's an airplane with big flashing lights on it, the brightest thing you see just sitting there in the sky is Venus. And Venus and Jupiter, actually will be very close together. They're getting closer and closer. That was the picture from yesterday. Venus and Jupiter are getting closer and closer together in the sky. They'll be about three degrees apart on the 15th of this month, so about two weeks from today. So I'll remind you again once we get back, but you know, watch them over break. You, know, watch, you see the two bright objects, they're the two brightest things in the sky over there, if the sun and moon aren't are. You know, and watch them, they're going to get closer and closer together and actually pass by each other on the, on the 15th. Okay. Of what, what's going to look like? The, the transit? Um, I can probably find you one. I don't know, if I don't have one here. Oh, actually, I think I did see one on here, wasn't there? Solar transit, oh. In fact, there is one from 2004. Can you see it there off in the... You can see the image of the planet just going across the surface of the sun. So, I mean, it's not gigantic. It's not like an eclipse where the whole thing's going to be blocked out because the planet is much, much smaller. And Venus is much further away than the moon. So it's not going to be that. But you would actually, if you could watch it over time, you'd actually see this slowly moving across the disk of the sun. Is that 
That's Venus. That's Venus, yeah. Only Mercury and Venus can pass in front of the sun as seen from us because they're closer than us. So only the two inner planets can actually pass in front of it. If you went out to one of the outer planets and you could see other, then the other ones would be able to. But it, it's, a very, it's a very rare event. So if you're around on June 6th, something, something to try to look for. Other questions? Questions? Okay. Well, let's go finish up the... June 5th and 6th. I probably remember what it was from our location. Let's see. Sorry, evening of June 5th for us. I apologize. This is the map of it. Where it will occur. So we're actually lucky it will be visible. This is just the map showing where it will be visible. It'll still be occurring at sunset for the entire United States. So later in, the day, later in the evening for us, it won't start until later, but we'll be able to see it. The only place that will not get to see any part of the eclipse is sort of most of South America and Western Africa. Part of Spain and Portugal will be out of luck too. They won't get to see anything at all. The rest of the world will get to see part of it. If you're out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, you get to see the whole thing. So be something where you'd want to take a cruise ship out to the middle of the Pacific, out to Hawaii or something, you know. For, if you don't have vacation plans this year and you got endless money to spend on a cruise to Hawaii, no, might be something very interesting to see. Okay. Let's go ahead on to the... Finish up the sun then. We were just about done with it. I'd done almost, covered almost everything. And I did remember at least to take off the question I'd asked you about neutrinos. So I, I did do that right. We had looked at this, and I'm just coming back to it for a minute. This was, the, this was the method by which the sun produces its energy. And in essence, it was four protons smashing together in this complicated process. But in the end, you had four protons go in, and you had a helium nucleus come out. Four protons, if you add up how much mass they have, it's a little bit more than the helium nucleus. So you add up these, these how much mass each proton has, four of those, and compare it to one helium nucleus, there's a little bit of mass that's missing, that's gone. That mass has been converted to energy in terms of these gamma rays. So that little bit of mass has been converted into energy, and that's where the sun gets its powder, power. Einstein, E equals mc squared, that little bit of mass gone, you multiply that times the speed of light, so even a tiny bit of mass can be a lot of energy, can correspond to a lot of energy. But the other thing that we had talked about here was these little neutrinos. And I'd mentioned them briefly. They were for a number of years a big, big problem for astronomers and physicists, these neutrinos. They're nice because they don't interact with anything. So essentially they, they're formed in the sun, the center of the sun, heart of the sun with all these nuclear reactions. And they come streaming right out of the sun. So as far as they're concerned, the sun is almost isn't there. They can travel through, you know, they can tra travel through miles and miles of lead and never interact with anything. They just zoom right through it. So they can come right out of the center of the sun and come to Earth in eight and a half minutes. Travel at almost the speed of light. So they can travel you know, very close to the speed of light. They can get here in about eight and a half minutes. So the whole idea was what we wanted to do was detect them. We you know, they don't interact much, but they do interact one in a trillion times they'll actually interact with an atom. And cause, and cause an effect that we can see. So not everyone, but if you have trillions and trillions of them coming through, 
well, this one might interact, and then, you know, 10 minutes later, another one might interact. So you can detect, you can detect them. Very, very rare, very, very rare occasions. Yeah? Oh, it's been a long time since I've done particle physics. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah, it's, they're, they're a type of matter that just does not interact with anything. And there, there are other, there are some, there are similar types too, other types too, but they just don't like to interact with anything. There's no, they have no charge to interact. They have essentially no mass. They just kind of breeze right through everything. But it's a good, good question and I'm not, I'm not really equipped to answer that. That one I am not really equipped to answer. If I'm, not, I'm not a particle physicist. But they do, they go travel straight through anything. So we wanted to detect, detect them. And what was, let me see if I go to the next one. Okay, maybe we'll leave this up because I know some of you like to copy it all down, so I'll leave it up while I'm kind of explaining that. They come right from the core of the sun, they interact with nothing, they come streaming right out. Because we can do that, if we can detect that one in a trillion, we can learn about the core of the sun. We can find out what the core of the sun is doing right now. If we just look at the visible light, we can't see what the core is doing right now. We see what the core was doing a long time ago. It takes a long time for that energy to weave its way out. It's got to go through the radiative zone and it doesn't just go straight. It kind of zigzags and takes a long time to get out of there. It takes time to go through the convective zone. It takes a long time. It can take tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of years for the energy that's being produced at the sun to actually slowly work its way to the surface. So it can actually take a long time for that to occur. If we could see these neutrinos, we could get a direct picture as to what's happening right now in the core of the sun. And this had led to, for a long time, what they had called the neutrino problem. Because they did, they set up these big detectors out in, if I remember correctly, out in South Dakota, some of the big mines down there. You wanted to get down below the surface. You didn't want to get any interference from other you know, other at atomic particles coming from the sky. You didn't want any other sources of interference. You wanted to have the Earth shielding everything it could so that the only interactions you were going to get are these neutrinos. So, so yeah? They'll give, they'd give us a snapshot. They'd tell us what's, we could, if we could detect them, we could tell what's going on in the sun right now, how the energy production is going on because we're seeing it as it was. We're seeing the sun then as it was eight minutes ago. We can see what the core was doing eight minutes ago. Okay, we're not exactly, but we're seeing it eight minutes ago instead of 100,000 years ago. How often does that Does what happen? That the, that we can see the, the as you can detect them. You can detect, you don't detect all of them, but as you, the sun sends out trillions of them every second. So how, I'm saying like, like about how, how often can we detect them? Like the one, one in a trillion. You can detect them all the time. There's trillions of them coming. But we can only detect, you know, if, if 50 trillion of them come and you can only detect, you know, one out of a trillion, you're only detecting 50 of those 50 trillion. You're detecting a very small portion of them. But, yeah? Uh, not to jump in, but I, I no. know they kind of classify different neutrinos, like mm -hmm. categories. Yes. Um, with, with, with detecting that, did they, did they classify those by the way they were able to be detected, the neutrinos? That well. It's a good thing, you're, you're, you are jumping ahead, but yeah. Right. The, the, they, this, this, this was detected, the, there, are, there are three different types of neutrinos. This, the experiments were set up to detect one specific kind, okay. which is the kind that is produced in that reaction that I show you. Okay. So they produce what's called an electron neutrino, and that is the kind that is produced in the solar reactions at the center. So that's what they were set up to detect. 
And what we found when we did these first detections is that we were finding we were detecting about one-third of the neutrinos expected. How do we know how many were expected? The proton-proton chain. We know how much energy is being produced in the sun. We can go back and work and say, okay, how many neutrinos are being produced? We could say how many should be coming out. We know the likelihood of them interacting. So if, you know, I said 50 trillion are coming each second and we can detect one in a trillion, then we should be detecting 50 every second. I think I'm overestimating how many we could possibly detect. But the idea is there. You can detect that certain number. So we could say we should be detecting 50. And we were only detecting a third of that. We were only detecting, you know, what, 16, 17 of them. That's a big difference. No, that's not just a little bit off. You're only detecting a third of what you would expect to detect. That's the whole problem. That was what the problem was, is that we were not detecting the right number. We are, our theory said, according to the sun, we said we know how its energy is being produced. We should be able to detect so many neutrinos. Okay, we set up this great big experiment, and that's what the next picture is actually, just a picture of sort of to give you an idea of what this was like. Great tanks of cleaning fluid in the mines in South Dakota. You can get an idea of scale. There's the people there. And then there's a great tank of cleaning fluid and all the detectors scattered around it. All the detectors to detect when, they, when, the, when those neutrinos interact. Again, the one in a trillion time they interact, then you can detect that, one, that, one inter, that interaction. So what happened, again, we're, detect we're detecting only one-third of what we'd expected. We thought we'd find a lot more. That told us either one of two things. Either you know, our model of the sun is wrong, or we don't understand neutrinos completely. Do we not understand neutrino? I mean, that was two very easy observations that when we're detecting the wrong number, you know, scientific method, something's wrong. Right? We're not detecting the right number, so there's two things that it could be. Maybe the sun, maybe our understanding of the sun is wrong. Maybe the proton-proton chain that I showed you isn't exactly how it works, or the temperatures aren't exactly. Yeah? That could be another one, yeah. But once, it, once they verified and thought they'd verified their equipment, maybe your initial measurements, yeah, that could be a problem. But once you went through and re-verified everything, sort of like, well, speaking of neutrinos, sort of like what the Italians with their faster-than-light neutrinos, right? I don't know if everybody heard that was a big thing last, last year. Did you hear when they already retracted it? They retracted. Yeah. Apparently there was an issue with one of their, with the, with, the, with the equipment, just as you said. That's what brought it to my attention. There was an issue with the equipment. They redid it. They had a problem with the equipment. They had thrown things off. Tiny bit, but just enough to bring it from over the speed of light to under. Yeah, so, so that was a big thing last semester, and now it's already gone. So, so these were the two things that, that we thought of. I mean, this was, you know, this was recently, this was in, you know, 20 years ago. We still would have taught, we still would have gone through this. That, you know, was our model of the sun wrong? Did we not really understand the sun? Or do we not really understand the neutrinos? And we kind of jumped ahead a little bit when in our earlier discussion. It turns out that, you know, our model of the sun is right, which is good because all those equations and everything that I showed you are based on our understanding of the sun. It would have thrown off everything we knew about stars. And it turns out we didn't understand neutrinos, but there are three types of neutrinos. 
The sun produces one, as I mentioned, the sun produces the electron neutrino. But the, once that electron neutrino is formed, the, elect, the neutrinos will oscillate between what they call, the particle physicists will call flavors. There's three flavors of neutrinos. They don't have any different taste to them or anything, but that's just their terminology for it. So you can have the electron neutrino, the muon neutrino, and the tauon neutrino. But they'll oscillate between types. So once they formed, it can be electron, and now it's, now it's muon, now it's tauon, and then it just keeps going through those cycles and constantly changing types. So it changes types. When it gets here, the equipment will only detect one kind of neutrino. So if the ones that are still electron neutrinos, or that have oscillated forward and back to electron neutrinos, can be detected by this large tank of cleaning fluid. The types that have changed, no, can't detect them. They're going to go right through and we're not going to detect those. So it turns out detecting a third of them was correct. We didn't know it at the time because we weren't sure. You know, we didn't understand. What we really didn't understand was how the neutrino worked. So the particle physicist learned a lot about neutrinos from this problem. Could have just as easily been something was wrong with our models and astronomers might have had to go and recalculate and refigure out their understanding of the stars. But that's what it turned out to be. It was just that there were three types, so one-third ended up being correct. That's what we should have detected. We just didn't understand the neutrinos. So. That was sort of the solar neutrino problem. Again, that's been solved now for 10, 10 plus years now. So, but yeah. So, so the issue with the physicists is that they didn't really understand how they were traveling. They didn't understand how they that they oscillated, that they changed types. It, w- it was theorized that they might, but we didn't know it. You know, it was theorized. Like at the time, we would have said these are probably our two things. If we if we believe our experiment, these are probably the two things that could be, that could explain this neutrino problem. Either. The sun is producing energy differently than we really think it is, or the neutrinos are oscillating, and we should only be detecting it. But in order to know which one, we had to, it took time for them to be, get experiments that could prove that the neutrinos did oscillate, and that's what the issue was. Was till we found that for sure to know which one was the problem. Um, you said that they oscillate. Is that based on time? Does it change after a certain amount of time? They'll change over the over the course of that eight minutes. They can oscillate from between the three different types. There is there should be a rate for each one, and I'm not. Again, yeah, of course, yeah. that sorry. <laughs> some things I can answer right away. Some things I'd ha- I'd have to go and research more just because it's not my right. my expertise area. But yes, but they will change, and I'm sure there's some kind of you know pattern for them. But I don't know whether it's really really fast or really really you know how how fast it is. And I don't know if this like. is overreaching, but um, okay. is is it constant like the rate at which they change? They oscillate, or is, does it differ? I think so, but I don't. I couldn't again. Yeah, well, again, you know, yeah. The, yeah, but I don't. I couldn't tell you for sure. But I thought I was thinking it would be that it wouldn't just because if it was just random, then all of a sudden you shouldn't get. Sometimes you'd get more, or, you know, maybe you get more or less. But that's just me thinking quickly off the top of my head on it. Did you have another question, Connor? No, there's there's an article uh, Nobel Prize uh, on NobelPrize.org that really goes mm-hmm. into like Okay. Okay, because I think they went through, I mean, that's what, I think there was a Nobel Prize involved with the solution to this. I'm yeah, sure that was part of it. Okay. Okay. So, that's the end of Chapter 9. Um, I'll go through quickly through the summary here before we go on to Chapter 10. Um, sun, again, if you want to see all this again, I know we just tested on it, so. 
Sun is held together by its gravity, powered by the fusion, fusion nuclear fusion, nuclear fusion that we just looked at at the, at the beginning of this class. That's the energy reactions, the proton-proton chain that causes the energy production of the Sun. Outer layers of the Sun are the photosphere. That's what we see when you glance up at the Sun real quickly. You see the photosphere. Chromosphere and corona are the thinner outer layers, not visible except during an eclipse. And temperature of the photosphere was about 6,000 degrees. Chromosphere, a little bit cooler. And the corona shot up, shot up in temperature, much, much hotter. In order to understand the interior of the sun, we base it on our models. So we have to make mathematical models. And I know I showed you those nice equations so you don't have to memorize or anything. And I didn't bring those back on the test. But you know, there, there's equations that we can do and we can say and we can determine everything in the sun. Again, they de the models depend on certain parameters or things you have to set. And so we don't understand them completely, but we can get a very good idea and we can try to, the models will predict if we start with something at the center, work those equations outwards, find out what the outer part of the sun should be like, and then we can observe the outer part of the sun and see does it match up. If it doesn't quite match up, then you go and you tweak your equations. You tweak what you say, well, maybe instead of being 15 million degrees, it's 14 and a half million degrees, or it's 15. You can tweak those numbers, those starting numbers at the center to adjust your models, see what they tell you should be coming out at the out, what the, what, at, the end of, at the edge of the sun, where we can actually see it and observe it, and keep, keep adjusting them. And that's constantly being done. Helioseismology was the other one. That was looking at the oscillations of the sun. The way we use seismology on the Earth to understand the interior of the Earth, we use seismology on the sun to understand the interior of the sun. Sunspots are high magnetic field regions. They're very highly magnetic. And they are much cooler than the rest of the surface of the sun. So they're very cool in comparison to the rest of the surface. And then finally, nuclear fusion we looked at, convert hydrogen to helium, can releases energy. Four hydrogen atoms smash into one helium atom. Again, not quite that simple, right? We looked at the whole big chain. There's a whole big pattern that you have to go through. But in the, in the end, you're taking four hydrogens, making one helium, and giving off energy. Solar neutrinos, again, that's what we just spent some time talking about today. They come directly from the core, so they don't interact with anything. Zoom straight out to the, right out to Earth. You know the ones that are leaving left the sun. You know earlier in this class are streaming through us right now, but they don't interact with us any more than they interact with everything else. So you know they stream right through us and right back out of us and right through the Earth. It's only those one in a billion that interact, and it's not like the one interaction you know blows anything up. It's just a minor interaction, so you wouldn't even you wouldn't even notice it. And the observations, what we learned, again, from the what we called the neutrino problem, told us a lot more about neutrinos than it told us about the sun. You know, it confirmed our models of the sun, that our models of the sun worked, which was nice, but it didn't give us any new information about the sun. It said, OK, you're on the right track. It told us a lot about neutrinos when we found out what was going on. We found out that you know, maybe there were these three types of neutrinos, and the neutrinos were able to change between them. So it actually told us a lot more about the, about the neutrinos than it did about the sun specifically. All right, so questions on the sun? Question? Yes? Um, this isn't necessarily the sun. That's OK. It's just about, um, I know you were asking questions about the test earlier. Mm -hmm. um, I know earlier you said that uh, the final will be based on the test that we've had. Correct. Is it, does it still apply with this test? Yes. 
So, I mean, I recommend, what I recommend is go through the test. Anything you got wrong, I mean, true false is kind of easy to figure out what you missed. Um, any of the others? And I should say on true false, there was, there was one I had to throw out on the true false because I didn't realize I'd worded it badly. But there was one that said something about Pluto as being the largest of the trans-Neptunians. And then I realized you could have answered that true or false because I did tell you about Eris, which is a little bit bigger. So I took true or false on that one. So, but other than that, yes, any of the other questions. So go through and look at the other ones, look at the multiple choice. If you can't figure out an answer, you know, figure out what you can, come see me. I'll be happy to go over the others with you. You know, I'll be happy to catch me before after class. We can go and right, I'll tell you what the, I'm not going to hide the answers from you. It's not, you have to dig them out. Go look for them. I don't want you to come with, you know, you missed 15 and you want me to go over all 15. See what you can find. If you don't understand them, you know, I'll talk to you about them. But I'll be happy to give you. If you, there's two you cannot find, you know, don't drive yourself nuts spending 10 hours trying to find them. Come see me at that point, and I'll, get, I'll, I'll let you know what the answers are, and we'll talk about them. So yes, that does, that does still apply. I will be taking these four exams and using those to make, the, to make the final, plus the material after the last exam. That'll be the new material. OK. Are we only having a final? I'm sorry? Are we only having a final? What do you mean, are we only having a final? There's, no, there's, all, there's four exams. We've had two. There's two more exams in the second half of the course. And then the final will be on the last material. All right, so let's go ahead and get on to the stars. So chapter 10, measuring the stars. And we'll start on this today, and then we'll come back to it in a week and a half, almost two weeks. Measuring the stars is really sort of our introduction to the stars. And it has to do with some of the things that we can measure. How do we understand the stars? One of the things that's shown in the first picture here is that when you look at stars, you see a number of different, you see different colors. We'll see stars that are very definitely bluish tinged. You see stars that are very definitely red. Now, that's not false color imaging or anything on here. That is actually the images of the star. That is actually the picture of the stars. They are that color. There are stars. If you look at Orion in the evening right now, you know, you've got Betelgeuse up here that looks very red, and you've got Rigel down here that does look bluish white, depending on how good of a sky you have. You can actually see it as a bluish white. That is telling us about the temperatures of the stars. The hotter stars are going to look blue. We'll be peaking in the blue-violet part of the spectrum, so they're going to look very blue. The cooler stars are going to look very red. So Betelgeuse is a much cooler star. Betelgeuse is about 3,000 degrees. Rigel is more like 15,000 degrees. Our sun's somewhere in between those two. So that's one of the things we can measure, but there's a lot of other things that we can measure about the stars. We can determine, just by looking at their light, we can determine not only their temperatures, we can determine what they're made up of, we can determine how they're moving, we can determine their mass, we can determine their size, how big they are. You know, how big is a star? You know, how, many, how many miles, how many kilometers is it across? We can determine that kind of thing just from the light from the stars. So what we're going to look at, again, first of all, we're going to look at sort of this, the stars around here and learn some of, the, some of the motions of things around us. And then I'm going to look at what the magnitudes are. So jumping ahead to magnitudes, we were mentioning luminosity and apparent brightnesses. Luminosity is... Luminosity is how bright something really is, right? how much energy it's putting out. So it's putting out so many units of energy. Apparent brightness is how bright does it look to us? And how bright does it look to us? 
So there's a luminosity, which is a true brightness. That's really how bright it is. If you want to compare two stars, you need to do that. Apparent brightness, you really can't compare two stars. Because two stars could look exactly the same brightness to you, but you could have this really, really bright star that's real far away, and the real faint star that's close. And if you have them positioned just right, they're going to look just the same brightness. So apparent brightness doesn't tell you specifically about the star. Unless you know that they're the identical type of star, or that the stars are identical, it doesn't tell you a lot about them because there's a distance effect that you can't see. When you look out at the stars, it all looks like they're the same distance away. You can't tell that one's here and one's here. You can't tell that when you're looking at them. And then some of the things we'll determine are sizes and temperatures that we can actually measure for the stars. Hertzsprung-Russell diagram, probably hit that next, next week. In two weeks, we'll probably get to that. I don't, we won't get that far through today. And then the distance scale and masses, some of the other things that we can determine. We can determine the distances to the stars. We can determine the masses of stars. We'll do a little bit of the distance scale, scale now, but we'll find a way to extend that a little bit further on. So we'll see how much we can get through the first couple of these today. Now in terms of distances, that's one of the important things that we want to determine in astronomy. Because you know, thousands of years ago, the lack of parallax, the fact that we couldn't see this, meant that they thought the Earth was at the center of the universe. You know, not only does it not seem like we're moving, but if we were moving, you know, the Greeks could understand this, that if we were moving around the sun, we'd be seeing stars from different positions, from here and here. We'd be seeing the star at one position in January, one position in July. And if we look at this star, if there's a nearby star as compared to more distant stars, it's going to look like it moves its position. And that does happen. It just turns out that the Earth's orbit is so small as compared to the distances to the stars that that angle was unmeasurable. The Greeks couldn't measure it. Tycho, with his, observation, with his observations, couldn't measure it. Galileo, with his telescopes, couldn't measure it. Even the early telescopes weren't able to. It wasn't until the 1800s that we were actually able to finally track down and measure the parallax of a star. So really, one of the first, you know, there's a big proof of the Earth actually moving around there when you, was, when you could see a parallax. But it was not until you know, almost 200 years ago that we were finally able to determine that. But parallax, you're, you're kind of familiar with. You, know, you, you use it all the time. It's just looking at things from two different points of view. And you, know, you have two eyes, which gives you a depth perception. If you ever try to walk around with just one eye closed in an unfamiliar area, you don't really have the sense of depth. And you, can tend, to, you, know, you tend to walk into things a little more. If you've ever had you know, an eye you've had to have blind, blindfolded for a while, one eye, you can't really get the depth perception that you get with two eyes. And you do that when you hold your, you hold your finger out in front of you, right? and I, bl I blink my eyes back and forth, my finger shifts. I'm looking at it from two different perspectives. Think of it as each end of the Earth's orbit. The Earth's here once, the Earth's here. That star is also going to appear to shift against the background, much further stars. Or if I just do it you know, I'm walk as I walk back and forth in front of the class. you know, Student in the front appears over there against that part of the background or against that student. If I go over to this side, now all of a sudden you've moved. You know, you're against a different part of the back of the classroom. It's the same thing that's happening with the Earth and the stars. The problem is that the movement for the Earth and the stars is you know, like this little tiny movement compared to the distances. You know, I'm moving back and forth, but I'm not moving back and forth enough that you can really measure that. And that's why it took larger telescopes in order to be able to determine this. Now the equation is giving here the distance in what we, a unit we use as a parsec. 
Um, parsec is about three and a quarter light years. And it's defined as the parallax. It's defined as the distance that a star would have with a parallax of one arc second. So, so three and a quarter light years. Three and a quarter light years. Meaning that three and a quarter light years, like I've mentioned, the nearest star is a little over four light years from us. So though is, there is no star within one parsec of the, of the sun. No. Sun's here, yes. There's, within us, there's one, there's one star, the sun. But there's no other star within one parsec of the sun. They're all further away. That star with, at one parsec distance would have a parallax of one arc second. Remember way back what arc seconds were, right? We had degrees. The moon on the sky was about half a degree. If you divide the degrees into 60 minutes, so divide that moon into 30 pieces, because it would be about half a degree, and divide those 30 pieces, each of them, into 60 smaller minutes, smaller seconds, seconds of arc. That's what you're trying to measure. So you're trying to measure, you know, one, divide the moon, the full moon, into 1,800 pieces, you're trying to measure one of those. That's a very small measurement to make. You know, if you're trying to measure the distance of the full moon, you could maybe see that, see that. When you're trying to measure something that much smaller, you need much more detailed observations and telescopes in order to be able to make that. But that's one way we can actually determine distances, and that's the only way we can really determine direct distances to the stars. We're going to go through, over the rest of the course, a lot of other methods of determining distances, but this is the only one that really is direct. It really gives us an immediate distance specifically to a star. The other ones are all depend on they're all steps in the distance ladder. They're all steps. You have to do this to get this one. You have to be able to understand some of the stars in order to be able to use the other, and they constantly build on each other. So, our nearest star to us. Well, Alpha Centauri is not the nearest star to us. I always tell you that. I'm not even counting the sun. Actually, Alpha Centauri, what we call Alpha Centauri, is really three stars. There's two really two bright stars that orbit pretty close together, and there's one very faint star that orbits kind of around the pair of them. So it's really three stars there, and it turns out that if you think of those two stars as being something here up here, the third star going around them right now is actually closer to us. So Proxima Centauri is actually the closest star to us right now. Not the bright Alpha Centauri star that you see, but a much fainter star is actually the one that happens to be the closest to us. It's orbiting around both. So if these are the two, if these are the two components of Alpha Centauri, the main bright ones, one's much like our sun, one's a little bit cooler, a little bit fainter. Then there's one much smaller one that orbits around both of them. Sometimes it could be further away, sometimes it would be closer, but it's a long orbit. So for the foreseeable future, it's going to be the closest star to us. That's, the prox That's called Proxima Centauri. Proxima for proximate or close. So it's the closest star to us. Now to give you an idea of the scales, in terms of this, there's just a couple examples here that are done. If you make the sun be a little marble, which makes it kind of small for, for my taste, but if you make the sun a marble, the earth would be about a meter away. So sun's a marble, earth's about a meter away, and about the size of a grain of sand, just to put everything to scale. The nearest star would be another marble 270 kilometers away. What's in between those two marbles cell is separated by 270 kilometers? 270 kilometers, pretty big distance, right? You're talking a couple hundred, about 200 miles. So there's nothing in between them. 
right around, about the 50 meters right around the, the one marble, you've got our solar system. Well, 50 meters, you can understand. You can walk 50 meters pretty easily, right? 50 meters, that's almost nothing. In between those is essentially nothing. That's giving an idea of how empty space is. So not just the solar system, you know, between that marble and the grain of sand, there's two other little grains of sand, right? Mercury and Venus. Got the Earth, Sun here, and Mars, and, and Earth here as a grain of sand. There's nothing, in, there's only two little grains of sand in between them. I mean, you don't see this. When you look at pictures, you know, pictures, they, they take out all the empty space, right? You know, you look at the solar system, they put everything close together so you, you don't look at all empty space. But really, space is much more empty than you can possibly imagine. The other way to do this, one of the other ones that I do and that I've had my online classes do, is that make it a little bit bigger, make the sun more like 12 inches, you know, basketball size. And you've got to walk about. Well, if you did the sun about basketball size, then Mercury would be the little marble now, a little bit bigger, a little bit more easy to, and it would be in the back of the classroom. So, sun's here, Mercury's way in the back, there's nothing in between the two of them. That's it. It's about, about it ends up being about 40, about 40, 30 or 40 feet away. So, that's probably roughly where we are with the classroom size. So, yeah, make the sun the size of a basketball, maybe about a foot across, and you have a little marble in the back, that's Mercury. Go about 70 feet, and you'd have Venus. So go off. I don't know. Is there which way are we going? Another classroom back there. You know, go through the wall into the next classroom. Earth would be about 100 feet away. You, you can think how you're doing. You're having to walk big distances between each of these each of these objects. It's extremely empty. Now, that's not untypical for space. I should say there are some areas where there are a lot more stars. If you go towards the center of our galaxy, there's a lot more stars. They're a lot closer together. You might have stars within parsecs or even, if, even light years, you know, just a couple light, a light year of each other or less. So there are areas in the centers of clusters where you can have stars that are much closer. But for the part of the galaxy where we are, that's not that unusual. There's just not that many stars. Space is just that empty. And I should, OK, the other one, I should have. The sun was a basketball, right? I did the sun as a marble, and you had the next nearest star is about three, 200 miles away. If you did the sun as a basketball, your next star ends up over in the Middle East. And I try to remember, I did it one time, and it's like over in Syria or something towards the Middle East. So one star here, one star, you know, that's, and there's, no, there's essentially, you've got a couple little specks of dust around that one, and then nothing, 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 almost nothing. So space is incredibly, is incredibly empty. So here's an example. Here's looking at the 30 closest stars to the sun. And you will see some of these have some stars that are a little bit closer together. But you get sort of an aspect of the three-dimensional aspect of everything. Here's our sun here. Sun's at the center of everything, right? No. Tend to do that from our perspective because we're looking for the sun. But if we happen to live on Alpha Centauri, then, you know, Alpha Centauri would be the center and everything else would be further away from that. But there isn't really a large star. There isn't another star that's really that close to us. Alpha Centauri is the closest. And it is about little over a parsec, little over a parsec away, if you measure the straight distance for it. You know, still trying to project three dimensions on here. Sirius is another one you may have heard of. Relatively bright star. You can see that in the evening right now, too. Sirius and Procyon are actually visible towards the Constellation of Orion is here. Sirius and Procyon are the two brightest stars in the, dog con in the dogs. Canis Major, Canis Minor, the two, the two dogs of the hunter Orion following him. So Orion, of course, isn't shown here because Orion's way off in the distance, much further away. 
But you also notice that most of these stars, I mentioned Sirius, Procyon, Alpha Centauri, most of them don't have names. They all have names, but they don't have names names. Even Alpha Centauri really doesn't have a, it doesn't have a name. Procyon and Sirius are very bright stars that were visible in the northern hemisphere and were given, you know, traditional names. Most of these others are catalogs. And some of them are named by their constellations. Epsilon Eridani is one that would just be the about the fifth brightest star in that constellation. Tau Ceti would be the same to count through those. UV Ceti is a variable star designation. Most of them are not really big, bright, prominent stars. The closest stars to our sun are not the big, bright stars that you normally see in the sky, Sirius being the one exception. You know, it's one of the brightest, it is the brightest star and the brightest star in the sky, and it's only because it is so close. Most of the stars that we see here that are close, you can't even see without a telescope. So you actually need a telescope to see most of these stars that are closest to us. There are many more stars that are further away that are that many times brighter that they'd overwhelm these in terms of brightness. Most of the stars near us are very, very faint. Now here's an example of one of them. This is Barnard's star. This is the fastest moving star in the sky, other than, like the, other, than the, other than the sun, which moves a lot faster. And you can sort of see it here, it's sort of highlighted with the arrows. Ignore my little, ignore the mouse arrow there, because that's kind of confusing. Let's move that off. Okay. Don't look at the mouse arrow, look at the other two arrows. But you see the star there, and you see the star there. And you can see that it's moved very, very, a very little bit know, in 22 years. That's a fast moving star. The distances are so large that even these stars that are moving extremely fast, you know, stars like Alpha Centauri could be moving, you know, 20, 30 kilometers a second. That's, that's fast, right? Space is so big that it, it still takes a long time and they're so far away it still takes a long time to be able to see those motions. Proper motion is what we see in the sky, is what we see in the sky. That's what we observe as the star moves through the sky. There's also a radial motion. Star might be coming towards us or away from us. So we see it, when we see the motion in the sky, we break it up naturally into two components. We can't see this, right? If Alpha Centauri is coming closer to us and it comes a little bit closer and closer and closer, you can't really tell, you know, you can't tell how fast it's moving close, faster or away from you just by watching it. You know, if something's coming straight at you, as it's off in the distance, can you tell how fast it's coming to you? Not when it gets real close, yeah. But when it's way off in the distance, you can't tell how fast it's moving towards you. And this is way off in the distance. We're talking light years away. So when we see that, the radial velocity is just how fast it's moving towards you or away. So we can, we can, can measure that through the Doppler effect. There is a way to actually measure that through the shifting of the spectral lines. But, you know, you can't just see it directly. This is the one you'll see directly is what we call the transverse, transverse velocity or the proper motion. So, as we see it move, and that will add up over the years, right? It will keep moving. So as the star continues to move, if you came back 22 years later, it would be a little further along and a little further along. Probably just the amount that the pictures happen to be taken. They'd probably take a number of them. These are just two examples that are, happen to be that far apart. So it wouldn't have been no specific thing for 22 years. Proper motion is nice in that it, it adds up. It keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So if you came back 50 years later, you'd be able to see it even better. 
and 100 years later even better because they're constantly moving. Parallax is different. Parallax is just shifting back and forth. So it doesn't matter whether I, I need to observe them six months apart, but if I come back and do it again 10 years later, it's the same, the shift is the same. Don't they just like set up a camera that takes a picture like every year? Oh, they do. They have. There are places that are taken of them. Oh, yeah. They do. They do. There are some like that that are done to observe. And you can do it to observe proper motion. It doesn't help you with parallax, right? Because it's the same shift every time. I mean, if the star is such and such a distance, its shift's going to be exactly the same every year. It's not going to add up over the course of years. So when you add those two together, you know, this you can determine by Doppler effect, the shifting of the lines. This you can determine by measuring it over the course of time. You add those together and you can get a true motion. Those numbers are reasonable. I mean, those are reasonable for stars. Some place, some things move faster than that. Some would be moving slower. But 30 kilometers per second is not unreasonable for a star. But that's, you know, think about that. That's an incredibly fast speed. That's an incredibly high speed for something to be, I mean, you think about moving 30 kilometers per second, right? That's, that's fast here, right? That's not, that's not a, you know, not 30 kilometers per hour, which would be something you could measure, what you could do, but 30 kilometers per second. That's 60 times faster than 30 kilometers per hour. So if you multiplied that by 60, you'd get what? About 1,800 kilometers an hour. It's pretty fast. You know, faster than a lot of, than most things you're used to on Earth. Okay, on to luminosities. Okay. Luminosity. And I think I gave you a number for it for the sun. Didn't have, don't have to remember it. But luminosity, or what we call absolute brightness, tells us how much energy a star is putting out. So if you could really go and look at the star and measure how much energy each square meter of its surface is putting out, that tells us the luminosity. And you could compare stars. If you could measure that, you can compare one star to another and tell how much energy they're emitting. So we can measure that. That's something that depends, it depends ex only on the star itself. The apparent brightness, though, is what we see. We see the apparent brightness, and that's how bright it appears when we look at it from the Earth. So it depends on how bright it really is, right? That's one of the things that matter. It's absolute brightness. How bright, does, how bright is it? So it depends on that because a brighter star, star that's putting out more energy should look brighter. But it also depends on the distance. So it depends on the luminosity and it also fades off as the inverse square of the distance. And that's where I mentioned before I could have two, bright, two stars that might look the same brightness. You know, they look just as bright in the sky. But one could be a really, really bright star, a gigantic, tremendously bright star that's a thousand light years away. The other could be a very faint star that's only eight or nine light years away. They could still end up looking the same brightness because of the distance effect. So apparent brightness really tells you nothing about the star. It tells you how bright it appears to us, but it doesn't tell you whether it's a real bright, real bright star, really is bright and putting out a lot of energy, or is it just really, really close to us? It doesn't tell you that. Yeah. Well, it's how we catalog things. It's what we can see. In order to get anything else, you need to know apparently how bright it is, and you need to be able to figure out distances. So if you could figure out this, you could measure very easily. If you can measure the distance, and I've left off part of the formula there, you know, there's more to it, but if you can determine that distance, then you could calculate luminosities. 
Luminosity is what we really want to know. But you can't get that by looking at the stars. I'm just trying to give you the point. You can't really look at the stars and tell me, you know, oh, that's a really bright star. Is it really bright or is it just close to us? You know, Sirius is the brightest star in the sky. The stars in Orion are a little bit fainter. If you put them all at the same distance, Sirius, would, you wouldn't even see Sirius. It would be a faint little thing. It's only bright because it's only about eight light years away. The stars in Orion are about 800 light years away. So if you brought them 100 times closer, can you imagine how much brighter they'd be? I mean, Orion would be, you know, blazing in the sky. You wouldn't miss it. But it's all, so it all has to do with distance. So it's all a distance effect that you can't see. And that's why we want this number. This is what we really want to know is the luminosity. But you can't just go look at the stars and say, oh, there's a bright star, there's a faint star. You can, do a, you can only measure directly what they appear to be. So that's what we can measure. That's the number we can actually get in terms of what we call the magnitudes. So this is an example of the inverse square law as to why things fall off by squares. And I think, I think Professor DeLisi said he did something with inverse square law a little bit. And just to summarize, if you have your light source, you know, you just imagine your light coming out, okay? Through one square, say one square meter, you have a certain amount of energy. If you go twice as far away, it's now not going through one square meter or two, it's actually four times as large. If you go three times away, that same amount of energy, you know, just imagine this is a cone spreading out, it's going to be nine, at four it would be 16, 25. So things get fainter, not just half as faint, they get fainter much quicker as you get further away from them. So again, those stars in Orion that are a hundred times further away than, the, than Sirius, if you could bring them a hundred times closer, they wouldn't be a hundred times brighter, right? They'd be 10,000 times brighter. So they would then be by far bright, much brighter than the star Sirius or any of the other stars in the sky. In fact, the stars in Orion, if you brought them, what did I say, a hundred times? Ten, they'd be you know, significantly brighter than, they'd be brighter than most of the planets. Might not quite be up to Venus, but they'd be, they might be close to... They'd actually be brighter than Venus. So they'd actually be brighter. If you could bring them that close, they'd actually be brighter than Venus. So you'd, you know, the tremendous the distance, the light just gets spread out over a much larger area as you go further out into space. So as you go you know, one unit, two units, again, it's still two units by two units, but now the area that you're spreading that light through, instead of being one, is now four, two units on each side. At, th at a unit distance of three, it's three by three, or nine squares. So, this is what I've been trying to say before. When you look at them, and in the blue, it's blue-purplish, it's kind of a three-dimensional. Think of that as three-dimensional, these are the distances to the stars. You've got one fainter star here, relatively close. You've got this much brighter star further away, but what is the observer going to see? Well, depending on how you balance them, how you balance the distances and the brightnesses, it's quite possible that these two stars could actually seem the same brightness. So that's why I'm trying to say the apparent magnitude, it's what we can measure. It's important because it's what we can measure, but it doesn't tell us a lot about anything about the star. Yes, sir? Um, as far as like brightness, in relation to like energy, does it mean, like, can a dimmer star still be giving off like, as much energy as other stars? Can a dimmer star give off as much energy? Right, as far as energy goes. 
Not per unit area, no. Not if you divide it like per square meter on the surface, a dimmer star would, uh, oh, wait a second. In this method, yes. If you mean this because of the distance, if you mean really in terms of absolute, if you're talking about apparent magnitudes, yeah. Yes. Yes, in terms of apparent magnitudes, yes. Okay. It could be, because it's so much further away. You know, the fainter star, if you were to put the sun eight light years away, it would be a faint little star eight light years away, let's see. Okay, put the sun about 30 light years away. The sun would be one of the faintest stars you could see in the sky, compare comparable to one of the faintest stars you see in the sky. It wouldn't be much of anything. But still putting out the same amount of energy, it's just so much further away. So these other stars, whether they're you know, brighter or fainter than the sun, are still, could still be, are still putting out, most of the stars you see in the sky are putting out a lot more energy than the sun. They're just a lot further away. So. The problem again is we're trying, we need to determine distances. Distances are a big problem to determine in astronomy. It's not, the distances are so large. I mean, I gave you an idea of the scales, you know, our basketball here, our basketball over in the Middle East. That's a long distance to determine with nothing in between them. That's a very hard thing to be able to determine. But we need it in order to determine, in order to get these apparent brightnesses. That's nice. That's what we can see. I can put a telescope and you can put a little meter that will count how many little photons of light hit the, me hit the meter and you can detect how bright that star is. It's real easy to measure. Trying to determine how much luminosity it's putting out, we've got to be able to figure out that distance. And one of the things you're going to see over the rest of the course, over the next, you know, let's see, we've got 18 chapters, so over the next, you know, seven, eight chapters, we're going to be talking about distances. How do we determine distances to stars and then out to galaxies? You know, it gets even harder because you're talking further and further away. So here's magnitudes. Magnitudes, and we measure them on what we call, we use the magnitudes or measures of apparent luminosity. It is how we perceive stars, how bright we perceive stars to be, how we look at them. And when this was first done, thousands, th thousands, about 2,000, a couple thousand years ago, it was done by grouping the stars. You looked at the stars and you said, okay, here's the brightest stars. Those are stars of the first magnitude, right? They're the brightest stars, they're stars of the first magnitude. The next grouping of stars were stars of the second magnitude. Third, fourth, fifth, sixth. Faintest stars you could see with the naked eye, which is about the naked eye limit here, were six. So that's part of where this confusion with the magnitudes came out, is that that's how they were developed. The brightest stars were first magnitudes. As you went and did it, and found out there were others, and that there were things in between, when you turned out those magnitudes, you started, you left, you left the, the scale the way it started. So that first magnitude, bright, second magnitude, fainter, third magnitude, fainter, as the number gets bigger and bigger, the brightness gets fainter. So you have to keep that in mind as you look at magnitudes, the bigger number you see, when someone, you know, if you read something, if you read one of your articles and it talks about looking at something at 15th magnitude or 25th magnitude, you're talking about extremely faint objects. Those objects get even fainter. Your limit at the naked eye is about 6th magnitude. Not around here, around here it's probably more like 3rd, just because of the brightness of the city lights. You might only be seeing 2nd or 3rd magnitude stars. But with binoculars and telescopes you can actually see a lot fainter. It's also not a, well, not what we call a linear scale. Most of the scales you have, are, most, most things we talk about are a linear scale, which means that, you know, I talk about temperatures, 
You know, it might be 100 degrees or 50 degrees. Well, you know, 100 degrees is twice as hot as 50 degrees, right? You know, 25 degrees is half, you know, twice as cold. Makes sense, right? Magnitudes don't. Magnitudes actually are what is called a logarithmic scale, but a change of five magnitudes means 100 times brighter. So when you go from first magnitude to sixth magnitude, which was originally the brightest stars to the faintest you could see with the naked eye, those stars aren't six times fainter, they're 100 times fainter. Each magnitude is actually about two and a half times. So as you go each magnitude, as you go from zero to one, one to two, that's about two and a half times fainter as you go further up the scale and make the number bigger and bigger. Each five would be a factor of 100. Ten magnitudes would be a factor of about 10,000 in brightness. So that's why the scale is so compressed and why we can put things as bright as the sun and as faint as some of these extremely faint objects that can only be seen with like the Hubble telescope on one little scale that doesn't stretch across you know, 15,000 slides to show it to you. Because it's compressed, a logarithmic scale will do that. And you can actually put the, everything on one scale. And that's just naturally how it develops, because that's how your eye sees things. Your eye st- perceives the brightnesses that way. So it's not like a linear scale, again, like temperature. You can very easily say, OK, you know, this, this star is 3,000 degrees. This star is 6,000 degrees. It's 10 times hotter. If I tell you one star is third magnitude and one star is sixth magnitude, it's not twice, it's not twice, it's 2.5 times 2.5 times 2.5 times. Yeah. Much more, much more, much more difficult. But it's, na- it's the way, it's the way that the scale was originally developed. Now, if we were just developing the scale now, we'd probably do something completely different. But this is just how it had naturally developed over thousands of years and how you look at that, how you perceive brightnesses in the sky is a big part of it. Now, some of the things labeled here, and I mentioned some of these earlier, the sun, the brightest object we have is a minus 26.7. The full moon is a minus 12.5. Now, again, remember, that doesn't mean that's about half, right? That doesn't mean half is bright. That means if that is 14 magnitudes, you can multiply 2.5 times 2.5 14 times and find out you know, how many hundreds of thousands and millions of times fainter the moon is than the sun. So it's, again, it's, it looks, they look a lot closer than the actual numbers are, than the actual brightnesses would be. Venus at its brightest, which we're getting to very, we're getting very close to right now, probably over the coming month, is about a minus 4.4. Sirius, the brightest star in the sky, is about minus 1.5. So when they were first done, again, there was no differentiation. It was groups. So the brightest star, Sirius, would have been grouped in with Alpha Centauri and Betelgeuse. They all would have been stars of the first magnitude. There was no differentiation between them. Yes, sir? You wouldn't have to calculate No. You will not have to calculate it on a, on a quiz or exam or anything, no. I, d- I do like you kind of to know the 5 to 100 type thing, but I'm not going to give you one that says, well, you've got to do it 5, 2.5 times. I'm not going to make you do anything in between. If you know the 1 is 2.5 and the 5 is 100, that's the, worst, that's the worst you'd get. I won't give you anything that says, you know, you need to figure out 3.5 magnitudes difference. You can do it, but no. I'm not going to make you worry about that. Okay. Question? Yeah? Well, just take the, the magnitude and the mm-hmm. number. We're not taking into account distances at all. No. This is apparent brightness only. This is just how bright it appears. So the objects I'm giving you here 
are how bright they appear to how bright they appear to be or limits. You know, binoculars could see two tenth magnitude, and you know, naked eye can see this much. That's that's only the, that has nothing to do with distance. If some of these objects were much closer, you know, some of these very distant galaxies, if you brought them very close, they'd be incredibly bright. But they're not because they're so far away. If you put the sun out at the distance of Sirius, it would not be a minus, it would not be a minus 26.7. It wouldn't even be a minus 1.5. It would be much fainter than that. I'd have to go through and calculate what the number would be, but you know, it could be done. And then, as I already mentioned, the big thing, so the two things are, first of all, it's, not a, log it's a logarithmic scale, so it doesn't change in a sensible fashion, you know, two times, two, two magnitudes, three, you know, it doesn't work like that. And it's backwards. So if I ask you, you know, question could be, you know, you have two stars and one has a magnitude of, you know, 2.5 and one has a magnitude of 2.3, which one's brighter? Right? Not how much brighter, won't make you do that. But you could tell me which one is brighter. Just make sure you remember it's a smaller number. Or if I do a negative one, you know, what's a negative two and a positive two? You know, make sure you remember the negative two is brighter. That, that's important, but I won't make you figure out the differences, the actual brightness differences between them. Now temperatures. We talked about this at the beginning. And there's, there's Orion. I mentioned Orion. So, belt of Orion. Bodies outlined here, Rigel's the bright star down towards one knee of Orion. Betelgeuse is up towards the other shoulder. If you look at that in the evening, you will see Betelgeuse looks very red. It has a reddish glow to it. It is a red star. Rigel, you might see the bluish, you might not, but it'll, look, it'll definitely look more of a whiter to a bluish tinge to it. That is telling us the temperatures. So red stars like Betelgeuse are about 3,000 degrees. Blue stars like Rigel can be as much as, uh, I don't know Rigel off the top of my head, I think Rigel's more like a 15 to 20,000 degree star. So relatively much, much hotter. Most of the stars in Orion tend to be blue and you can see that as you outline them here, bluish blue, the three in the belt are blue, one up here is all blue. So most of them are all very hot blue stars. Betelgeuse is kind of the unusual one. It's a red it's a red supergiant star, a red, very large red star. But you can see that as you look at the others, you'll get sort of a variation between them. You'll see some that are incredibly red, have a really deep red glow to them. Others that'll have blue. Some others will be more in between, you know, more of a yellowish color. And you'll see sort of, they're almost not quite the whole range of the spectrum. You tend to see things as sort of a yellow white in the middle, or you see them as too red or too blue. But when you get to the extremely coolest ones, they will look extreme, look very, very red because they're not emitting anything in the blue part of the spectrum. So they'll look even redder. But looking at a, at a picture like that, we can then tell, you know, you could tell me, you could pick out the hotter stars and the cooler stars on that picture. Right? Look for the cool stars, look for the red ones. You can't tell me what their temperature is. You can't tell me, you know, maybe you can't compare two of them very easily. You know, if I just pick out two random stars and say which ones hotter. But if, you, if I asked you to find a hot star or a cool star on there, you could certainly tell the difference. Which one has a bluish tinge to it? Which one has a reddish tinge to it? Now what we get that from, something we've looked at before, was the black body spectrum. So we have some stars here. There's some stars listed with temperatures given. You know, there's Betelgeuse at about 3,000 degrees. There's Rigel at about 20,000 degrees. Sun here at about 6,000. 
And you recall we looked at the black body curves before so that we said that they drop off real quick when you go towards short wavelengths. And the peak depends on the actual temperature. So if you could find where this peak is, that's one way of measuring the temperature. Well, that's a tedious thing to do. Try to find that peak means you have to measure at all these different frequencies. You've got to measure across the visible part of the spectrum or into the ultraviolet in order to determine the, te to determine the temperature. What astronomers actually do is something a little simpler. They measure the light of the star through two different filters. They just measure it at two different points. So they measure how much light comes in what we call the blue filter. So filter out and look only at the blue light from this star. Filter out another one, take the same image of the same stars, but look instead at the yellower light, what we call the visual part of the spectrum. So if we look at those two, if we see more light in the V than in the B, that's telling us it's a much cooler star. If you see more in the blue than in the visual portion, it's telling you it is a hotter star. The actual difference between those two is enough to tell you the temperature. You can actually determine the temperature just by measuring in two spots. Because of the shape of that black body curve, you only need to make two measurements. It's a lot easier than making you know, 100 across the spectrum and trying to map out the entire spectrum. So in order, if you just want to determine temperatures of the stars, you can take an image of the sky in one filter, take an image of the sky in the other filter, measure the brightnesses of each of the stars and compare them, and then you can get, immediately get temperatures relatively accurately and tell whether the stars are 30,000 degrees or 3,000 degrees or where they are in between. So I'm thinking that's about the end. Is there more temperature? Yeah, but I'm not going to do We're not going to get into that. That's a lot more to get into. So we'll save that for after break. And we'll finish, we'll finish right here with temperatures. Temperatures, what it leads into is the classification and how we classify the different types of stars. But we'll come to that a week from Tuesday. So enjoy your break. Um, and I will see everybody. Oh, you know what? I forgot. Let me pause this.